this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, it's uh, Henry here. Running, running solo today. Danny's off doing Dan- Danny things. Uh, he doesn't tell me and I don't ask. Um, I'm here with uh, Kagan Miller. Uh, Kagan, how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Really uh, looking forward to you and I chatting about some things. Um, Kagan is a, uh, a former cryptological technical technician. Uh, from the United States Navy from 2009-2013. He worked at NSA Georgia in support of 5th Fleet and intelligence operations in North Africa and the Middle East, such as the Libya mission in 2011, the anti-piracy mission in Somalia, um, as well as other intelligence support given operations in Yemen and Syria. Um, Since getting out of the military, he has been working with uh, homeless veterans in the nonprofit area and at the county level as a case manager for supportive housing programs. That's an awesome bio, dude. I got it. I got to tell you, that's it. That's a lot of fun, but a lot of a lot of cool, a lot of neat things that you got to uh, got to experience there. So, uh, let's start off with some uh, basics. Tell us about. Uh, just give us the brief rundown of your your time in the Navy. Oh well, uh, basically, I joined. Um, because I wanted to get money to go back to school. Um, like most of us do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I joined for very practical reasons. It was, I was 23 when I went in, and I decided um, that I, you know, I was like, where do I want to be in five years, and what do I want to be doing? And I remember going into the recruiter, and they said, write down three goals that you want for yourself. And uh, so I wrote down, I want to get money to go back to school. I want to have a job that I could that I could continue in the civilian world if I wanted. And I wanted to have an experience doing something that I would never get to do in the civilian world. And uh, so, yeah, I, I went to MEPS, and I didn't really have any preconception about what I wanted to do. I didn't really know. I was really open to a lot of things. And I went, and I scored high enough that they asked me to be in the nuclear power program, but I was like, I don't want to do that. Because my dad did that, and uh, he was a nuke uh, electronic technician on a ballistic missile sub, and they just have way too much school, and yeah, it just didn't seem like something fun to me. So the next thing they offered was uh, intelligence work, and it was a linguist first, but that is a weird test that you have to take, and I didn't pass that. So they offered me this other thing, and it was really vague because it has to be, and I just... The only thing that I noticed was that it didn't have a lot of math. So <laughs> I just was like, okay, yeah, I like that one. Um, just call it a win. And it, yeah. And it just, it was, it was super vague. And I just, but I was like, all right, this sounds interesting. And, uh, you know, I had the fun boot camp experience like everybody does. <laughs> and uh, I went to school and I finally learned what the hell I was going to be doing. And that was actually really interesting. I was like, oh, cool, there's all this stuff. And um, then I went to my command and got to got moved around a bunch to different shops because I had surgery. So 
I was mad down for like quite a while, mm. but um, it was, it was good. Like I, that, because that happened, I got to be, you know, I got to work NSA side and Navy side and uh, that was really different. So it was kind of cool to be on different sides of the mission. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm jealous, man. I know it, it, it's, it's, it sounds awesome. I, uh, so was there like when you came, uh, when you started working with drones, was there, was there an MOS change for you? Is it a, it's just a special assignment within Intel? How does, how does that work? It, it really just kind of depends on what your job is and what they need from you. So <laughs> yeah, it's, huh. Yeah, I mean, there's there's specific missions that are focused on different parts of the of the, the platform, like whatever the platform is, whether that's a drone or a ship or a satellite. So there's different things that you're focusing on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> so it it wasn't like the big thing about the intelligence picture community is is I like to. Uh, make an analogy that it's like a mosaic where everyone has their own little job and then you put it all together and that's the intelligence picture. And so everybody is responsible for a piece of it and then they get to, then it gets presented to um, the higher ups or if it's a real time operation, then, you know, you're, you're putting it together really fast and then giving the information to the people on the ground. Okay. Or, you know, to the other people across the country, you know, wherever it is. I mean, because the drone mission is so big, it's like, you know, it's everywhere. <laughs> so. Um, so as far as assignments went, when you were involved in that, you would, would you ever be in theater doing some of those missions or would you usually be back here? Everything I did was from georgia from from yeah, georgia from okay, okay yeah so distance technology you know is a big thing and it, it uh it allows us to you know be a part of these operations in a way that we weren't able to before and uh that is it it, it creates a lot of interesting problems for the people doing it oh i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> um so so t take me through that a little bit the the is that something I, 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 I think a lot about the operations side of the military and how different pieces end up working together. And so I'm thinking, okay, working a drone halfway around the world, that must mean that there are guys on the other end who are the techs actually dealing with it, telling you if your, your drone is, is ready to go that day, if it's, or maybe it's down for mission because other stuff's going on. But I, I wonder, do you, do you get that specific with assignments like that, do you like a team of guys handles one drone or how does that work? Well, it's a little different from where I was because my job was more like, I think that's more of what like the pilots take care of, like, cause they're the ones flying it. So then they have to know all that stuff. Okay. But okay. From our perspective, it was just kind of like, you know, Oh, we're doing a mission. So we have to do X, Y, and Z. Okay. And, okay. Uh, and like, or we're getting ready to, you know, or it's, like for us it was like the tail end of it of like oh hey this is happening so then we're watching what's going on okay so. <laughs> okay so there was a from not being a pilot there was kind of an operational disconnect then as far as i'm sure that was another element that was more compartmentalized as far as what you heard about and what 
you shared back with the pilots. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, and that's that's kind of how all the the everything in the community goes. Like everybody is, you know, on a need need to know basis, and so everybody does what they know how to do. And then you're not always getting the information back on what is actually. I mean, you always know what's happening when it's in operation, mm-hmm. but when it's just, you know, the strategic operations, which are more long term, you might be doing a report and then you don't really know where it's going unless you ask somebody and they're willing to tell you. Ah, okay. So, so, so as far as like, you you would not work a baseball card for a for a single terrorist over a long period of time. Then it would, you know, you'd have pieces and they would get pushed off to different people and then maybe it might come back to you? Well, the way it's different. So like in Iraq and Afghanistan, when people are doing strikes, mm-hmm. you know, they have people on the ground. There is like a significant human portion of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you're working missions that are not there, like Somalia and Yemen mm-hmm. and other parts of Africa, like that's all SIGIT. So that basically means like we're just doing the metadata and tracking their phones. Yeah, yeah. And that's not, like, it's not 100% accurate. So, so, so the, so it, 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 so in that, in those cases, there is no human element to it. It is simply, un- unless maybe somebody on the ground sent you guys something, but you're not going to get actual info from what's happening right there at the source. Yeah, no, it's, it's not like, it's not like, um, you know, in like in Iraq or Afghanistan, when you have the Apaches or whatever, and they're out doing their mission, and they see some dudes, and they're like, "Oh, we're getting to get clearance," and then they can engage. Yeah, like that's not how it works in the in other places where we don't have ground elements on the ground. Yeah, and uh, and so that you know can create a lot of difficulty because there isn't there isn't that. Um, There isn't that second confirmation, you know, of, yeah, oh, yeah. yes, this is where that person is. And like you said, if we did, if somebody did see something, you know, where, uh, where there was like, oh, this person's over here, like that may be a couple hours old. Yeah. You know? And, and then again, all we have to go off is like the data. And, and then it just kind of, uh, like sometimes people are guessing. <laughs> They're not guessing because they know when something is on, yeah. but you don't always know if that's that person. You know, so it sure, could be sure. their family member. It could be another person. You know, and I think personally that's why they made the interactions so open. Like as far as saying, you know, in Yemen, they're like every every military age male can be considered an insurgent. And so that's everyone from 15 to 70. Yeah, yeah. And they can say, oh, yep, everybody's an insurgent. And I'm like, how is that okay? So. Yeah, no, I, 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 part of what I wanted to talk to you about was the, the disconnect between the actions of, of the drone in, in theater and then all of the work on the back end and how connected those pieces of information are. And, um, Thank you so much for recommending Jeremy Scahill's book. I can't believe I hadn't read it already. Yeah, um, uh, uh, what, what's it called again? I'm, I'm blanking on a... The Assassination Complex. Assassination Complex. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. 
Um, but that in the Obama administration, that there was a there's a there was a great deal more controls. There was a great deal more um, obstacles for people to actually do a strike, and then you'd have that. Well, I mean, any operation, like any operation that we did that wasn't like in theater under regional commanders, it was it had to go to the NSC. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, we had a bunch of missions where it was like, oh, you know, we, we were ready to go, and then they either got the word back, like, oh, yes or no. Okay. And okay. so that's it, which, which I think is a good thing. Like, I think far too often we look at these, we look at everything that we've done in the Middle East, and we look at it from this military outcomes perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we say, you know, oh, we went here and did this thing. You know, like my friends who were in Marja in Helmand, and they're like, yep, okay, yeah, we went to the birthplace of the Taliban and we picked them out. But then what happened when you left? They came right back. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, what, we're not changing the situation on the ground because we're not, we're, our outcomes are wrong. We're looking at the wrong outcomes. We're looking at military ones instead of diplomatic ones and cultural ones. And like, how do we get the people on the ground to feel better about their lives and have some kind of agency. And it's, yes, yes. yes. We don't ask those questions we, because we're not like, as far as the military goes and the military industrial complex, like we're not interested in that because we want to spend the money. We want to keep being there. We want to keep doing this thing. And yeah, I get so frustrated about it because it's, you know, as you guys have mentioned, you know, everyone is calling this a generational war and the rest of us who have been a part of it and been like in this machine are just like, what are you thinking? Absolutely, absolutely, it it it, it is, and it and it's it's. I know for me, since we started the podcast, that I've I've ventured out into so many topics that I did not realize the military and our ongoing operations have have bled into. And for example, and something I haven't read about yet, you you may have, but. I wonder if the, uh, the the hard strikes that we did um, by the CIA in 2011-2012 in Yemen were very much bigger precursors for the civil war that's going on there. Granted, I, I like I said, I haven't got a chance to really look at it yet, but um, you know, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about you know the the possibility that a country that may have escaped most of the global war on terror somewhere in the Middle East, but yet we still, you know, they, they still got dragged in in some way, ethnically or socially, and then, you know, they're, they're now part of it, too. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many factors involved with something as crazy, you know, as Syria or Yemen. And, you know, you have all of these powers in the Gulf countries that want to exercise their their militaries and they want to exercise their ability to mm -hmm. project power. I want to see them strong. And, and we are more than welcome to, or we are more than willing to push that forward because we know that we're going to continue supporting them. Yeah. Or they know that we're going to continue supporting them because we want their friendship and their oil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we want, we want forces that we can use that so that dead American troops doesn't show up on the news as often as it used to. And well, that's and yeah, I think that's the most important thing is that we can look at these countries 
exercises of power and say, if you're just doing a cursory look, you can say exactly that. Of, oh, well, at least we're not sending people there. Yeah. And people make the same argument with drones as, oh, we're, you know, not sending people there. There's not troops on the ground. You know, it's like, but the biggest problem is how nobody's asking the question, how is that impacting the people on the ground? What do they feel like when we have, you know, you know, when we have aircraft overhead or unmanned aircraft? And like the, so many stories have been talking about that, about, you know, kids being afraid of blue skies and just the fact that they know when that happens that there could be a strike. And we're inflicting terror on these kids and the people there. And we don't ever talk about that because we think about it from our perspective alone of we're not sending people, so this is a better idea. And on top of that, where is the recourse? There is no recourse for the people. No, I mean, no. when when they had those folks come, uh, I forget when it was, 2011 or 12, when there was a bunch of people that were suing the government from Yemen, and they were suing the Yemeni government, and they came to the United States to talk to Congress, and only five congressmen showed up. <laughs> and if that doesn't demonstrate the power of the defense contractors and how nobody wants to be seen as against the military machine, I don't know what else does. No, absolutely. I uh, We got a chance to sit down with Iona Craig of The Intercept earlier this year, and the she's awesome yes oh no she's great i i, I love I'm, I'm actually gonna try to get in touch with her here because i think she's back in the uk for a little bit um but the picture that she paints of being there on the ground and the, the you know the story that she told about trying to get to the site of that ambush from january 2017 there in yemen um which if any of you guys haven't read it yet please go out and read it right now it is an amazing story um mm -hmm. But uh, but no, like you're talking about is that we don't we don't honestly acknowledge how this other group of foreign people who don't have the same culture as us is going to respond to bombers and or, or maybe drones flying over their country at all days, all times, all, all different things. And, you know, they have the news, too. I mean, there's that it's not you know, they're not separated from the world in that way. So if things are if nasty things are happening in Syria and Yemen and other places, the rest of the Middle East knows it. it, it it's 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 never a secret. Um, but the one of the thoughts that I uh, that the book pointed out really well and I hadn't thought about beforehand is that the by simply going and killing someone in a drone strike, you've eliminated any possibility of any human intel from that terrorist if we were able to capture them separately. And so, you know, if you really lay out the picture of a drone strike, we're flying into a, a land that has not given us permission to be there. We target and kill their people without acknowledging who those people are. Um, but for our side, for the military side, for the, for, the, um, for the JSOC guys that might end up going on a raid in this kind of situation, you've just taken any chance of them getting real actionable intelligence by killing that terrorist. And, yeah, and it just, I mean, to me, it just goes into how much, so I feel like after 9-11, like, clearly there were some bigger issues that they focused on about how we need to start talking more to each other as far as the agencies go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so in, in a sense, that, that was good because it allowed people to be like, okay, well, 
you know, as long as you have the right readings and the right um, need to know, yeah. then you can talk to us about this stuff and we can start to figure it out. And, but by that same token, I feel like, especially after Iraq, there was a huge push to not just talk about what are the issues and like, you know, I mean, the biggest thing with Iraq, everybody blames the intelligence community a lot, where, yes, I mean, obviously the blame is partly at their feet, but it's also because the administration was pushing people every single day to, to come up with something. Yes. Like, yeah. they they weren't going to the task forces at CIA and NSA and other places to say, like, what do you have? You know, it was find something. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> And it just, it makes me so frustrated because, so you have that aspect, and then you also have the aspect of, you know, hubris of the agents who are the, not just agents, but the analysts who are, you know, you might have eight people in a room, and you have one person that says, I think this is this, and and everyone else thinks that they're wrong, but that one person gets listened to, Mm. and so you have everybody else that's like, wait a minute, I'm a better analyst than that guy is, shouldn't I, like, shouldn't I be in the right? And, but, so you have people coming up with these crappy products that are not 100% vetted and they're not in the way that we would like it to be, but it gets put anyway because that's the narrative that the administration wanted. Yeah. And that has happened more than once. I mean, and so it's, uh, it's just frustrating. Like, I think that was one of the big things for me. Um, that, I mean, that happened way before my time, but I mean, just seeing those instances of when I was in about like where there's a push from somebody and they're not like, I thought my job was to sit there and figure out what is right and what isn't right because people's lives are depending on my information. Absolutely. So, so I took I took that seriously. Even when I didn't know if people's lives were on the line, like I wanted to make sure I was getting it right because who knows what that's going to be used for later. So, it, but at the same time, you know, when I figured out like, oh, you know, my job is not to do what I think, it's to do what they think. <laughs> and I didn't really like, I, I would go to work like every day with just knots in my stomach and I feel like so bad about what I was doing because it just didn't make sense to me. Like I, I've looked at all the interventions that we've been doing and the things that we've been saying, oh, this is why we need to do stuff. But and I was never one of those kids that like was super pro American <laughs> when I came into the military. I you know, I was very much uh, against foreign intervention and you know, like I said earlier, I didn't join the military so I could who and like kill terrorists or whatever it was uh yeah so it just it's frustrating to have seen that change in myself and i didn't realize it until later until i got out and then a couple years later and then i'm like oh man i'm like having all these dreams and like having all these anger issues and like like all just you know all those check marks of ptsd (laughs) and i didn't realize it until um, later, until a couple of years later, and then I finally went to a therapist, and I was like, "Hey, I'm dealing with all this stuff," and they're like, "Oh, yeah, well, that sounds like this." Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, and it was cool though because I found when I got that diagnosis, it was really eye-opening 
because I finally realized, like, well, now I know what it is, and now I can start building a toolbox of techniques to work on, to work through it. Yeah, yeah. No, it didn't seem like a like a phantom thing anymore. That it actually was something you could you could actually manipulate and change with the right set of tools. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, during your time in, what would you say was the the earliest point that you would acknowledge that your feelings about this started to change? When did that happen for you? Um. Uh, let's see. I mean, 2012 was just a really shitty year for me, personally and professionally. Um, and that was the year I, after you got out, right? No, no, I got out in 2013. 2013, okay. So this was my second to last year. And, okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I was going through a divorce, and I had someone come visit me, like a, an old friend come visit me and ended up, like, assaulting me and taking some stuff. Holy shit. And, uh, yeah. And I had, and I mean, and then at work, like, I just, I continued to have this feeling of I am not doing, I wasn't following my principles. And I, I mean, I sucked it up, of course, because it's my job and you have to, I feel like otherwise I would have gone crazy. But I had friends that I could talk to about the things that were going on. Like, we could talk about what we were doing. You know, and then when the Snowden and Manning, well, Manning and then Snowden revelations came out, like we talked about it. And um, it's funny because like with Manning, I had a, when I, when I, when everything, when I first heard about everything, when I was in the community and it was like, oh, you know, we were talking about all the stuff that Manning had brought up. I, I admit I didn't really have a good grasp on everything, you know, and I just looked at what they were telling me. And I was like, oh, this guy did some bad stuff, you know. But then when I read the trial transcripts, actually, of what Manning said and uh, what she was able to talk about and the way why she did it, like it was, it was, it changed my perspective entirely because I was, I, I put myself in her position and I was like, well, you know, I, I've seen and done some stuff that I'm not very proud of. I'm like, what if I made that decision? And how would I feel about it? I mean, I had, I would have to make them sure that anything that I did would, uh, you know, be, it would, I, my conscience would have to be okay with it, you know, regardless of the consequences. And, and so that's when I started thinking like, okay, this was a really courageous thing that she did. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and I, and I had, and like I said, I had friends and we talked about it and we were all like, I don't, know what I would do if I was in that position <laughs> and uh, yeah and then the Snowden thing happened and I had friends that worked at NSA Hawaii that worked with him and they just kind of like brushed it off and they're like oh he was just one of those guys that would go to a bar and say oh I, I can't tell you what I do blah 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 you know but still like he made the decision to bring stuff up that put his life in danger in a big way and nobody, yeah, I, I just, I mean, it's for anybody to say that they're a traitor or they don't know what they're doing is just, it's not, I can't agree with it because it takes a lot of courage for somebody to uproot their entire life like that in the name of principle. Yeah, I, uh, 
I'll admit I, I went through a, a similar process with, with, with both of them. Um, you know, I, I, as far as Snowden was concerned, I was more concerned with the information, you know, and, um, but as, you know, the fact that he lives in Russia and probably will never ever set foot on American soil again, it's a pretty high cost. And people want to, you know, people want to make it sound like he's on some kind of luxurious vacation, that, you know, the Kremlin treats him really well. No, this is a, this is a prison cell for him. And, and, and people forget that wasn't his final destination. No, it wasn't. He, he was trying to go to Ecuador, I believe. And uh, and they they stopped him at customs and took his passport. Yep. So he is not there by choice. Yeah, yeah. When you cancel somebody's passport, you, you they, they have no more power to go anywhere. No. No, it's uh yeah, it's it's something that eats at me as well. And um you know, like Well with, the hard thing, I mean with Manning, so like she she was having real difficulties during deployment. And I mean, everybody says they have difficulty in deployment. Um, but like listening to what her superior said yeah. uh, when, when she was an E3 and she had an E4 and they talked about when she would go into a room and scream for an hour and nobody said anything. Yeah, I'm like, where the hell is your chain of command? Yep. Where's where your... is your, where's your NCOs? Where's your JO? Like, where is your people in charge of you that are saying, Hey, like what's going on? Yeah. You know? yeah. And nobody, it didn't sound like anybody did that. So that was really frustrating as well. And like they completely dropped the ball. No, it's a, it's a process Danny and I go through a lot. It's, it's something we've talked about a lot with the, uh, the Niger ambush is the, the absence of leadership from from the situation you know little little elements of it you know we can't completely pick it apart but when when leaders fail in the military there are so many more consequences than there are back in the civilian world just simply because we work with live ammo we you know we work with situations where if we don't act correctly or we act inappropriately people die it's just that simple but um no uh she was supposed to be in prison for what the next 33 34 years something like that yeah. um and i'm really i'm really glad that that obama chose to commute her sentence but i i it it felt uh how would i put that it it felt like uh an award without the award so to speak <laughs> you know is that i'm i'm really really glad she doesn't have to spend the next 30 30 something years in prison don't get me wrong but when when you commute somebody's sentence in that way for that kind of thing for being a whistleblower but actually won't pardon them and considering how the obama administration treated whistleblowers over the eight <laughs> years it's been in office yeah it seems like it like a it wasn't a shitty move but it was it wasn't a classy move i guess we could say i don't know no and i just i wonder how much i mean it just the mechanisms mechanisms behind the whole complex is just I just see like how much of it is what they wanted, the administration per se. Yeah. And then how much of it is what the higher ups, the Pentagon folks, you know, what did they want to have happen? And I mean anybody I feel like anybody could tell you 
that so much stuff is overclassified that there's just there's it's either embarrassing or it's just hiding incompetence. It's just um I mean the guy who he was the classification czar, I can't remember his name, but uh, he was in charge of basically the agency that classifies everything and determines what classification it is. He or he got out in two thousand eight, I think. And he even said, you know, there's this massive overclassification that's going on. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would be at work and I would read something and I'm say, why the hell is this classified? Like this, this is something that people could find out on their own <laughs> if they wanted to. Yeah. And yeah. we're sitting here putting it in this, in this specific classification, uh, just because we can. And I, I just, I don't know. I never really agreed with that. Were there ever times when it it seemed like it was something big enough that it's like they're trying to hide it from the media? That by by doing that they put it in a different category for public affairs officers everywhere? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean yeah. <laughs> I could definitely agree with that. No, I, kn- I know you and I chatted a little bit about Nick Terse and his uh his lovely afternoon spent on the phone trying to speak to AFRICOM. Um, uh, something I wanted to ask you about is about the, the kind of your mission habits. It's, it's, it's really interesting to me that you were still here in the States, but yet you were doing an active mission that was having impact elsewhere in the world. And so as far as your, your go home, the things that you would take home and bring back to work, how did that, how did that work in that environment? Um, I mean, I'm sure it's really weird, like, uh, for my buddies that I've talked with that, you know, have been to Afghanistan and Iraq, and, you know, they talk about the times where they just, you know, they were keyed up, like, the entire time. Yeah. And I couldn't really do that, <laughs> yeah. because I had to go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I step, out, I step outside of the skiff, I step outside of the facility, or, and then I get out of base, and then I am... You know, I'm a normal person again. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm not because it's like a military town. So, you know, there's a bunch of people who are kind of going through similar things, but they're not always doing the same thing. Yeah. And yeah. we don't always know what's going on. I mean, uh, the place where I was stationed is, you know, an army base. And so there's like 20,000 soldiers and maybe 1,400 of us Navy people with like 800 Air Force. And, Everybody just kind of like, oh, you guys do your own thing. Like they didn't really, a lot of them didn't know what we were doing, mm. but uh, they knew some of it. And they're just like, oh, you guys are the secret squirrel people. And we're just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was strange. I mean, I would have to come home and think about the things that I was a part of or that I was doing that day. And uh, that that was hard i mean especially like i said in that year when i was dealing with a bunch of shit and i was by myself and i was working mids um for like six months straight so i was working from 7 p.m to 7 a.m and you know my schedule is whack like everybody else has like a normal schedule and i am just kind of sitting at my house by myself with all these reminders and stuff and it was not good. I mean, I can tell you, I <laughs> I would go out and buy beer, and then the minute that I ran out, I would go out and buy some more, and just like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I coped with things. 
um, for quite a while <laughs> until I, you know, started engaging and became more social. And uh, like I said, I was able to have friends that I could talk about these things with, and it made me feel not so in my own head. Good, good, good. So that, yeah, and I mean, we could sit there and be critical of what we were doing in a way that wasn't um, necessarily impacting our ability to work. It was just like we could go home and they'd be like, that was fucked up, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And then, and then we could be like, yeah, you know, and it was really nice to be able to, I feel like when you, when you become an adult and, you know, you're able to, you can hang out with your friends and just, you know, have a bottle of wine or like a beer and just talk for like two hours. And you don't have to do anything other than that. And, you know, it was really nice to be able to do with the people that, um, that I call like my best friend. No, that's, that's really the, 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 the key love, the key connection that, that service members, you know, that we come away with. And, um, I think it's it's probably the most important thing we do in terms of dealing with PTSD is creating those connections and maintaining them because we really feel heard that the you know it, it, it as opposed to telling Joe down the street that the person you're speaking to has a similar experience or the same experience so even if you didn't serve together or at the same time there's still a lot of parallels in there that can that can touch up that's that's the thing that I've really found doing this work with other veterans is I because I when I got out you know I was just really excited to be out and I I didn't really care about like the veteran thing I was just like I feel like when people get out that's like a very similar experience everyone gets out and they're like all right I don't really want to care about this anymore <laughs> I don't want to think about it but um, after I had like a couple veteran friends but there wasn't a lot but. Uh, and you feel isolated after when you get out. And, you know, I was in school. I was in a community college. So I was around a bunch of people that were like 10, 8 to 10 years older than me. And I am just sitting there listening to their problems and uh, kind of being frustrated by it because they're like, oh, what school am I going to get into? And, yeah. You know, yeah. their little like life problems, which are important to them. But, to me, it was really frustrating because I was like, there is so much shit going on in the world and you're focused on this other thing. Yep. You yep. Know? But, uh, I mean, when I... And then, I mean, you get the people, too, that don't always know how to talk to you. You know, when you tell them you're a veteran and you tell them that, like, you've done things and they're just, like... I, I can't tell you how many kids came up to me and were like, the first thing they said when they found out I was a veteran was, oh, do you have PTSD? That was nice and, of them. I'm like, yeah, and I mean, I remember I did that party, and this girl, she brought this other girl up, and they were like, oh, hey, take him to the military, blah, 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 and uh, she's like, oh, do you have PTSD, and there's a guy behind me, uh, this Marine guy, and he's like, whoa, 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 that is not how you ask that No, 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 and, no. Yeah, and I just kind of laughed it off, because at the time, I didn't really think that I did, you know, I made all these rationalizations as to why I didn't have it. and uh, But then coming, when I came up here, and I started working with veterans, and I began to understand what it means to be a veteran, like that camaraderie that you have that transcends generations. And it's just this feeling of, you know, we all did this thing together, and, you know, we did it at different times for different reasons, but it's a very special 
thing that um, is really you really uniting. And I didn't really know what that was until I started doing this work and helping out other veterans and getting to understand their stories. And just the fact that we can sit there and like talk shit and like craft jokes to each other, you know, regardless of how old they are, it's a really nice experience and uh, really makes me feel good doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that you get to do that. It sounds it sounds like a like a great job for you, and again, a, a great uh, spot of catharsis for your your time in in uh, time in the military. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.